This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Claire Jasper. This morning we hear from Victoria's Birrarungma or Yarra River, the first and only river in Australia with a legal voice. The uniting factor when you look around the world at rivers that have received this kind of legal recognition is that they are absolutely beloved by their communities. They are almost always heavily impacted as well, but people love them. And it's that love that eventually transcends the impact we know we're having and actually gives us a way to move forward. Find out how a river gets a voice a little later, but first up, Serena Locke is here to run through this week's biggest rural news. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Clint. Almost everything we eat and wear has been delivered to us on trucks, and the high cost of fuel this week took down one of Australia's main trucking companies. Yes, Scott's Refrigerated Logistics has been placed into voluntary administration, so Cordamentha now runs a trucking company <laughs> with 1,500 workers and they're actively looking for a new buyer. Now, food deliveries to the supermarkets have been assured for now, but the National Farmers Federation says it's shocking news because so much of our fresh produce relies on a small number of delivery companies. Now, the National Road Transport Association is blaming the supermarkets for the tight margins of around 2.5% profit. And Warren Clark, the CEO of the Transport Association, says the announcement is a shock. It just shows the amount of pressure that's on transport and the freight sector and that pressure's coming from the top, you know, the, the top supermarkets, etc. And what happens is that, you know, people will jostle for the work, people will pick up the work, but there's still going to be uh, disruptions to the freight chain and it's those disruptions that the consumers will feel right through the whole system. And the ABC understands that Woolworths and Coles have met with the union and Coles, for one, was offering two weeks financial support for the workers in the meantime. Well, in a sign of the future, potentially without diesel, Australia's first electric logging truck was set to work this week. Yeah, so it's an EV B-double truck that sounds like a four-wheel drive car and it'll be transporting tonnes of logs around the Green Triangle in South Australia's southeast. Now, the truck has been converted from an existing diesel engine over the past year and is powered by a 720-horsepower electric motor. So the company, Fennel Forestry, um, commissioned Janus Electric to convert the truck and the process has been going for two years. Now, it has a range of up to 500 kilometres, but it's going to be put to the test because the, uh, the battery takes four hours to charge and it's a swap and go. So it just uh, swaps mm. it out using a forklift and off it runs again. But because there are not many um, of those swap and go stations, it can only work in that triangle area. Now, Managing Director of the Log Transport Company, Wendy Fennell, is excited that this day has finally come and she's really monitoring its capacity very closely. So the electric truck is powered by a Dana TM4 engine, which is 540 kilowatts, and it equates to a 720 horsepower engine. So it uh, has a normal 
automatic gearbox in it and operates um, all using electric power through the system. It has regenerative braking that uh, mimics that of an engine brake in a normal diesel, so um, with less noise. I can't remember the context that it came up in a few weeks ago on the show, but I remember telling you about that Canadian company that was doing uh, electric conversions of logging trucks there. And the theory was that they use all the battery power going up the hill and the brakes recharge the trucks as they're coming down those really steep Canadian mountains full of logs. And just before the show, Serena, I fell into a a massive wormhole on their TikTok as they (laughs) build all the trucks and everything. So I'll link to that in our show notes. Well, there's more news in the electric vehicle space this week with the first EV ute on showcase around Australia. Yes, and Warwick Long, the presenter of the Victorian Country Hour, got behind the wheel for a test drive. This is the first commercially available electric ute. It's on a tour showing off to farmers, but it has its limits, doesn't it? So there's a 330-kilometre range and just a one-tonne towing capacity. And it's come from China, the LDV brand. So Ben White, who tests farm equipment for the Condinner Group, says this EVU won't quite be up to the job on most Australian farms. It's good to see the tech there and, and to see, you know, what will probably be the first step in an evolution of vehicles in the future. Um, but of course, you know, we really need something that's equivalent, that's going to be fit for purpose. And, and, uh, and when we say it's equivalent, it's got to be as good as or if not better than, uh, than the, the current vehicles we've got uh, with regard to range, capacity and, and, uh, and towing uh, ability as well. So all those things need to come into play. I got a text from a very excited Warwick Long when he jumped into that earlier this week. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, you know, there are now electric bikes, just a few of them. Mm. Side-by-side vehicles are hitting the market, but they're expensive and, like the electric cars, slow to arrive. Well, changing gears, this week is the anniversary of the devastating floods in northern New South Wales. Yes, and and alongside the horrible memories of the nearly 15-metre-high floodwater through Lismore is the havoc it wrought on farms. And I know you'll be covering this Mm. in a little bit, but among the crops destroyed by the floods in the northern rivers a year ago was $20 million worth of soybeans. Now, of the 12,000 hectares of soybeans planted from the Clarence to the Tweed, only 5% was harvested. Paul Fleming, though, president of the North Coast Oil Seeds Association, says it was the worst year for growers in his history, but growers have tried to get back on the tractor planting during the summer. Luckily, it's been a reasonably good season this year so far. It's probably a bit more on the dry side than anything, but I think pretty much everyone that that planned to plant soybeans has planted and and got a a pretty good-looking crop going forward we probably do with a little bit more rain now some of the crop was actually planted a bit later than than ideal because of the the dry weather earlier in spring but the crops are actually looking pretty good at the moment yeah we'll hear from a very emotional dairy farmer just towards the end of the program but as it stands there's flooding in other parts of the country at the moment as well Yeah, so Queenslanders in the Gulf of Carpentaria would like to see it stop raining because uh, they're having their strongest wet season in about a decade. More than a metre of rain has fallen in Queensland's Mm. Gulf region since late 2022. And it's just so flat that it isolates uh, the communities for months. So for three months, they've been, you know, without uh, road access. They just have to get airlifted all their food and supplies 
Um, and what happens is that the water sits on it like a pan and mm. uh, it starts to really cook in this hot weather. So huge ongoing logistical operations for, you know, Doomagee, Burketown, Normanton and Corumba. I mean, anybody on the road will know that they're having to drive around those communities. So no one's getting close to them at the moment. But what's what's of concern is that, you know, that water just sits there and it'll start to cook the land, killing the grass. So a little bit of touch and go at the moment. Serena, since the pandemic, there have been more illegal fishing vessels sighted in Australian waters. The latest had trepang or sea cucumber and shark fins. Yeah, Australian border uh, authorities have towed the boat to Darwin and will destroy this wooden boat because they've found around 250 kilograms of sea cucumber and 15 shark fins. Now, the pandemic meant more boats, around 330 were intercepted at its height during the shutdown of Indonesia's economy in 2021. But Australian maritime authorities have worked quite closely with the Indonesians, so the number of boats has dropped back to about 85 this financial year. Peter Venslovis is from the Australian Fisheries Management Authority, says the eight crew members could face steep fines, which they won't be able to pay. Because of the uh, situation with these crew members and so forth, the sort of average fines that we do get you know, could, can range between you know a thousand dollars each up to you know ten thousand dollars each, um, but the uh, maximum fines are uh, much higher than that. But the main deterrent I must stress is the uh, seizure and destruction of their vessel. Serena, for all we've heard about the trade war with China, which has had, you know, a devastating impact on specific commodities, China imported a record amount of beef last year, buying more than 2.6 million tonnes from nations around the world. Yeah, so we're not the only supplier, of course. Uh, Brazil is a big one and there's Mm. another story. But look, it's the Global Beef Quarterly Report. Rabobank predicts China's record beef consumption will continue to rise this year. Now, it does present opportunities for Australia's cattle industry uh, and Australia just now is hoping China will lift a ban on a handful of a big Australian export abattoirs and trade ministers are um, you know set to meet around about now in China sometime so there are some breakthroughs happening. Rabo's protein analyst Angus Gidleybed says there are signs China's economy is opening and people are eating out more and buying more meat. It's a huge volume into that market. Brazil sent 1.1 million tonnes over there last year, which I think is the biggest protein trade in the world. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a massive market. It does have an ability to, to influence that global trade, uh, given the, the volumes in and out of that market. A couple of weeks ago on the show, Serena, we were talking about some massive amounts of money handed over for cattle semen, bull semen, and it looks like in all sections of the industry, the big bucks are being paid at the moment. Yeah, that's right. So there was a record price of $200,000 for a bull last month. This was Brahman. Um, And, uh, you know, they've been reaching record prices Mm. for a few years um, top-tier animals going for six figures. Now, Ashley Kirk at Rockley Brahmins in Queensland says the bull, called Fairy Springs Capitalist, has been with the cows already and uh, they'll also now collect semen to freeze and, and sell both in Australia and overseas to countries like the US and South Africa. Very good temperament, being homozygous polled, good underline, structurally correct, good bone, it was the right colour, good testicles, good semen. 
so he's yeah ticked ticked a lot of boxes that we were looking for. Um, the mother had had on a third calf, so that was important to us. The fertility side as well, and just a complete package. We thought. Serena, it was before the 2020, it was before the pandemic, but I visited an Angus stud just on the edge of Melbourne and their farm ute had a Mercedes badge. So that was my kind of economic indicator of how good it was to be in the bull genetics game at the moment. Well, I think if you want a big picture of how Australia's uh, farmers are travelling and the gross earnings, uh, then stay tuned to the Country Hour and also, you know, ABC Rural websites next week because ABEARS will deliver their outlook for the next 12 months and uh, and look at the year we've just had. But, you know, it's all set to be a bumper season for earnings in the farming sector. Yes, I'm sure we'll hear about the ABEARS conference uh, on next week's show because it really does tell the whole story of every commodity over the past 12 months. And I reckon that's it right. might be some pretty good stories coming out of this year's conference. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Yeah, good to talk to you, Quinn. When you move, you tell everyone your new address. Even if it's just next door. That's what we're doing on RN. A health report has moved next door. It's now on at 6pm on Monday instead of 5.30. Same with the law report on Tuesday. The religion and ethics report on Wednesday. The money on Thursday. And download this show on Friday. The same specialist shows at a new address, 6 o'clock. Or catch them anytime on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're headed to the Red Centre, where Indigenous farmers are growing garlic in the desert. They've been trialling varieties new to Australia to discover what's best suited to the local climate. We'll meet the retired entomologist who's converting a bush block into a breeding ground for butterflies, birds and bugs. And we'll discover how a tiny outback town is proving to be a perfect retreat for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Certainly I'm a lot safer out here than I am on the Sunshine Coast. You have sirens every 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, you've got planes and helicopters flying over all, all the time. You drive out to go down to Cotton Tree for a cup of coffee in the morning and you, you sit in there and people bring their bloody dogs in barking. <laughs> but out here, listen, there's nothing. It's wonderful. Finding peace and quiet and peace of mind will visit a retreat for veterans and first responders in a remote rural town coming up. First today, life on the land is hard work, but it can be even harder for LGBTQIA plus people working in agriculture. For two passionate farmers in New South Wales, coming to terms with their sexuality was a difficult personal journey. But after coming out as gay, they found support from their rural communities. Keely Johnson has this story. John Wright was born and bred a farmer. He runs a grazing property at Woodstock near Cowra in the New South Wales Central West. I um, am fourth generation um, in our family being on, on this farm, which is fantastic. Yeah, I've just always had a love for cattle, love for the beef industry, love for farming. John developed a particular interest in genetics and breeding after working as cattle manager at the Trangy Research Centre for several years. For the past two decades, John's been breeding a line of cattle he calls Bluey, a combination of shorthorn, Angus and Simmental genetics to improve feed efficiency. 
you know, the power of feed efficiency is, is really quite amazing and what it can do within the industry and what it can do to your breeding cattle. And one of the really exciting parts is that, you know, high feed converting animals produce less methane. So that's really a focus we're really starting to get into at the moment. And there's a lot of people who are very interested in that area, obviously. As a fourth generation farmer, his passion for working the land runs as deep as any other's. But at 28, he distinguished himself from most other farmers by coming out as gay. When I did come out, I had nothing but support from my family and my friends and my community. I'm sure there were people out there that weren't comfortable with the fact that I was gay, but those people just moved back. But he can attest the gay community in regional Australia can be hard to find. Yeah, look, I wouldn't call Cara the uh, gay centre of, of um, New South Wales or Australia. There certainly are other gay um, people around the town. You know, once I did come out, I, I certainly um, burn a few litres of diesel driving backwards and forwards to, to Sydney every weekend or every second weekend just to be in a community. But the draw was never strong enough to, to make me leave the farm. The aesthetics of the surround, the love of, of caring for animals and looking after animals and you know, that gives me so much joy that I'm, there's no way I'm going to throw that away for anything. Although it has meant finding a partner in a small country town is a challenge. It does not dominate my life anymore and I'm concentrated on what I do and trying to be the, a good person and, and, contribute and contribute to my industry if I can. I just want people to be able to, you know, experience life as they, they want to. And if there's people who are not staying in agriculture because they think they won't be accepted because of their sexuality, then that's really sad. And um, I think we're on the, on the road to improving that. It's an experience Hunter Valley goat farmer Alex Berry can relate to. Like John, he doesn't want to be defined by his sexuality. He's a farmer first and foremost. Come on! So when I first came out, um, I was worried that I'd be shunned. Uh, completely not the case at all. I suppose I've copped more slack of being a goat man than being the gay man. Alex and his partner Brad Dillon own a 20-hectare property at Seam near Newcastle, where Alex runs a boutique goat dairy, while Brad, an equestrian rider, manages horses. Alex is determined to not be defined by his sexuality and rejects the stereotypical image of a gay man. The LGBT community actually kind of is very a daunting place for someone like myself. I never wanted to be like what the iconic gay man was supposed to be. Um, it, it scared me. Being who I am is is a farmer. I'm, I'm Alex. I, I go and look after goats. I, I, I go to work. I work hard. And I think that's a big part of being who you are is not trying to be someone else. You just, just be yourself. The pair are both from farming backgrounds. Their parents owned neighbouring dairy farms in the Hunter Valley. So back in 2007, my family basically um, were in drought. So we had to make a sustainable turnover. And so after a few uh, crunching numbers, my family came up with the idea and they said, yes, let's go and milk goats. And since then, they've sold the family farm. And um, my partner and myself, we uh, bought a small little acreage here in Siam. And we have 50 acres and we have a little boutique goat dairy. Initially, Alex was milking 200 goats, but has since downsized to focus on breeding and judging. I had an opportunity to go to America 
and I jumped at that chance. And basically, I fell in love with a breed called Lamarches. They're an earless breed, and we finally bought our first um, genetic material, and uh, we finally got them here to Australia. So they're, they're higher in casein protein, so we get more yield of product. So instead of milking 200 goats, I only have to milk 20 and the cheesemaker gets the, the right amount of product to then on sell at farmer's markets. Yeah, no, they all need to be brought up and drenched and vaccinated. Yeah, they're looking good, but... Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. The, um, Alex and Brad celebrated their 10-year anniversary this year. He says society is becoming more accepting of homosexuality with each generation. It's changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think, um, and it's going in the right direction, obviously, but... You know, I, I take my hat off to those before us that had to do it a lot harder and, and be subject to, to hate. And it's, it's a tough gig to be, a, a, to, to be gay, man or woman, in, um, in any industry, let alone agriculture. But I think being subjected to a generic stamp is, is even tougher. The land opposite Bob Newby's house looks like any other slice of suburban bush. But if you venture off the concrete footpath and head down towards the creek, you'll find some rustic tracks and dozens of trees. When I retired, I thought I need to keep something, have something to keep myself occupied. I had been watching for a long time the decrease in habitats, the falling levels of biodiversity, and I thought, well, this is something I can do that's have a, will have a positive effect. I can plant some trees, I can try and restore a little bit of habitat and because I was an entomologist attract back some of the insects that used to be in this area. Here's another curiosity here. This is, this is called Ooline. Hello, I'm Michelle Gately and I'm walking with Bob Newby through this patch of bush near Mount Archer on the outskirts of the central Queensland city of Rockhampton. The trees here are all in varying stages of growth, and they all have identification tags too. Over the past 10 years, Bob Newby has collected unique and threatened tree species to plant in this bush plot. And they've all been carefully selected with the aim of attracting birds and butterflies. You may have a particular family of butterflies that will only feed on a particular family of plants. So if you haven't got those plants, you're not going to have those insects. More butterfly plants. This is a cassia here. This is a lot of the yellow butterflies that we used to see. But before he could start planting trees, Mr Newby had to clear away all the lantana that was clogging up the area close to the creek. Then he set about finding the right sort of trees to bring butterflies, birds and other bugs back to the area. They had to be natives, of course. They were preferably things that were reasonably local. Now, by that I mean they didn't have to just come from Rockhampton, but I certainly wasn't going to bring in a species from tropical North Queensland. So that was the first thing. They had to be native. I had a bit of a bias towards things that were unusual or rare or threatened. And, of course, I also wanted things that were going to be hosts for the butterflies. Some of the seeds for the trees were gifted to him. Some were won in raffles and others were provided by researchers. Now, a decade on from when he started, Mr Newby has planted over 150 species of trees. The trees he has planted can be hosts for more than 30 species of butterflies. 
So far, Mr Newby's seen about 15 of those species, ranging from large swallowtails to small blues. While some of those butterfly species are fairly common, Mr Newby said he's seeing them in more reasonable numbers, and he believes that's down to the more favourable habitat. It has been a slow and steady process, though. Particularly during the drought, it was pretty trying. I think I got to the stage where I wondered what I was doing because I was having to hand cart water um, to where the new plants were growing in. And in fact, initially, that limited how far I was prepared to extend my activities. The limitation in the early stages is keeping the weeds under control. I plant plants nearly every day, uh, plant every day just about. Um, and I think that, that has been part of the success of the project in that I didn't plant thousands of trees to begin with and then just walk away, which so often happens with revegetation projects. It's the follow-up that really is the key to some of these projects. So my approach has been very gradual. I sort of clear a small area, put in some native plants, get them established, maintain it and keep the weeds down and then I'll sort of push out from there. Mr Newby hopes his native regeneration project can be a bit of a model for what other communities and groups could achieve. When you go and talk to young school groups, you realise there is a real enthusiasm out there for doing things related to the environment. Um, The new generation really are quite switched on about the environment, whereas people my age, less so. I think we took it for granted. And there's a real scope there to do things with school groups and other community-type groups. But quite often you need something, someone to sort of sponsor those groups and, and get it going. So you need the local land care group to sort of take them under their wing or something like that. Now, if you're not quite up to the task of restoring your own slice of bushland yet or you live somewhere where it's not really possible, don't worry. Mr Newby says there's plenty we can be doing in our own backyards no matter where we live. Well, one of the easy things, I guess, is to, first of all, try and grow native plants which are going to encourage other animals and plants. And one of the popular movements at the moment is to plant native plants that will attract in butterflies and attract in birds particularly. Um, The small birds in Australia have been decimated over the last hundred years and we're only now realising that the insects, because they were fairly small, are also disappearing on a very large scale. Now if you live in a small suburban backyard You can plant native plants, little bushes that are going to attract in butterflies because if you haven't got the host, you're not going to get the butterflies. And on a slightly bigger scale, you can start planting things that are going to attract in small birds because at the moment, we're missing a lot of the small birds because there's just not the food there for them. Bob Newby, a retired entomologist from Rockhampton in central Queensland. He took Michelle Gately for a walk through a bush block where he's growing native plants to attract birds and butterflies. You can see more on that story, including some photos of Bob's plantings. You'll find them online at the RN website, abc.net.au slash RN. Hit the Programs tab to find Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, how growing garlic in the red sandy soils of central Australia could provide a path to paid work for local Indigenous farmers. And getting away from it all, the veterans and first responders supporting each other at a remote retreat in Western Queensland. It's about as outback as it gets. Welcome to Idaho. 
come in to our unique gate. But nestled in the remote town of Ada Vale in southwest Queensland is a place of refuge for veterans and first responders. Well, the uprights here are Gidgee. The white ants don't like that. G'day, I'm Dan Prosser, and I'm visiting Ted Robinson at this retreat that he helped establish in the small outback town of Ada Vale. It's about a thousand kilometres west of Brisbane and far removed from the hustle and bustle of city life. Vietnam veteran Ted Robinson's first encounter with the hut that would become the heart of the Ada Vale Veterans Retreat was unusual to say the least. In the early days, a few veterans from the Sunshine Coast were in a group heading out to the Birdsville races and um, we camped across the Blackwater Creek and a few of us came into the Ada Vale Hotel that night. They were telling us about the old hut down the street that we could buy for $10. So next morning with hangovers, we came down and had a look at it. There was a car halfway through the wall. Back had fallen down, it stunk, it had horse droppings about an inches thick in it. There was crap and garbage lying everywhere. And anyway, because our next stop was Quilpy, I went and inquired at the council. After a month or so, I finally worked out that they were sending a rate notice to an address with the wrong person's name on it when in actual fact years before they'd resumed it for non-payment of rates and they owned it. So we offered them $100, it sits on two blocks, $100 a block and we said we'd do the, the transfer and they said, yep, that sounds good to us. <laughs> that was at the turn of the millennium. But in the past few years, the addition of dongers for accommodation has transformed the retreat into a place where Ted says the mind and body can rest and heal particularly for those with post-traumatic stress disorder. When I first used to come out here, sometimes I'd be lying in bed at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. Next minute, you've got a cattle truck a driver around the back and they come on, get out of bed, get out of bed. No, I don't want to get it. Get out of bed, get in here, come on. We're going to go and get some cattle. You can come with us. I don't want to. Get out of here, we'll drag you out, you know. And that was the community here. And they're fantastic with me, absolutely fantastic. Uh, it hasn't always been rosy here. There's probably a reason that they said I couldn't work anymore. I don't think there's anything wrong with me. However, the, here the, uh, the community's forgiven me for some indiscretions that, you know, just comes with ingrained PTSD, serious drinking and the rest of it, yeah. Certainly I'm a lot safer out here than I am on the Sunshine Coast. You know, there's, uh, you sit in there and there's temptations everywhere. You have sirens every 20 minutes, half an hour. You know, you've got planes and helicopters flying over all, all the time. You drive out to go down to Cotton Tree for a cup of coffee in the morning and you, you know, you've got to wait, wait, wait to get there. And then you sit in there and people bring their bloody dogs in barking. <laughs> but out here, listen, there's nothing. It's wonderful. Ted says there might be 15 people in town, but the locals have embraced him and other veterans. It's a sentiment shared by Royal Australian Navy veteran John Francis. The, the people of Ada Vale are very welcoming. Uh, they love having the veteran community out there, and I think the veteran community love being out there for the peace and the solitude of the place. And watching that sun go down on that horizon and then watching a billion stars come out, you forget all about any problems that you may have. It's, they're, they're gone, they've vanished. Have you had any experience with PTSD? Uh, yes, I have. When I left the Navy, I was um, I spent time in the Victoria Police Force. So I've had a double dose from both the service and from the police service. And, and going out to Ada Vale has certainly 
helped and assisted that in a great many ways, whether it's uh, sitting you know, by yourself on the on Blackwater Creek trying to catch a, a yellow belly or just wandering over the old dump that's out there and trying to find treasures. It's a very relaxing, very lovely, tranquil place to be. Associate Professor Lisa Dell from Phoenix, Australia, the Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, says these retreats can have benefits for veteran wellbeing. Retreats like these, we know, can have some benefits for veterans' wellbeing. And certainly, anecdotally, what we hear is that these programs have been associated with positive and healing experiences. And whilst there's not a lot of research in the peer-reviewed literature, some research has suggested that these types of retreats can promote things like self-esteem, conflict resolution, and physical and social quality of life. So we know that there's some benefits for veterans. They also provide an opportunity for individuals to step away from usual life, as you were talking about, and to connect with others. And we know that being with and connecting to people who understand your experience, especially for veterans, can be really quite powerful. And these types of initiatives can connect people with social supports that they might not otherwise have. Uh, And social support is uh, very important when it comes to maintaining our well-being. Another advantage potentially to these types of retreats is that they can be a pathway to care for some individuals. So these types of events can be opportunities to engage people into the health service system, sometimes for the first time. So it can be the first time that a veteran might be talking about their experience or connecting with other veterans or thinking about the impact that their experience has had on them. But what we really need are some clearer guidelines on how these kinds of programs should be designed, how they should be run and monitored and evaluated. And we're just not quite there yet with those. In the middle of Australia, Indigenous farmers are working with the country's largest garlic producer to plant a crop that will end up on supermarket shelves. Hello, I'm Victoria Ellis and I'm visiting the Ali Karang Horticulture Farm about 350 kilometres north of Alice Springs. This farm was set up by the Centre Farm Aboriginal Horticulture Group to provide training and employment opportunities for the local community. It's giving women like Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly a chance to try their hand at growing garlic. And for Tisha, it's been a big learning curve. Get to um, learn, like learn um, how to grow and how to prepare. Yeah, so it's been good learning on, on the job. What sort of experiences had you had of planting and growing things before the garlic trials? Um, I didn't know anything about growing anything. Sabrina, what are some of the things that you have learnt over the last four years of the garlic trial? What sort of fertiliser we have to use for the soil and also how much water we need a day. The program has also brought the community together to work as a team. For Tisha and Sabrina, it's important because it's an opportunity to teach the next generation. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's good like for the kids to join in because they get to learn, they learn um, growing farm. and food, you know, and what's healthy yeah. and yeah, they're and growing. Yeah. This is also part of the future yeah? Yeah. for the children to learn their children. Yeah, I'm Joe Clark. I work in Ali Karan community. 
Joe is an Arunda man from Central Australia. He's the farm manager. He says the first years of the trial were hit and miss, but last year was good, and this year they're hoping to better their harvest again. It is a bit exciting when we've got a semi-commercial crop ready to go, and uh, if you would have told me that three years ago, I would have said, uh, yeah, maybe, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see the younger people jump on the tractors, plough the dirt, lay the sprinklers, and get an exciting three and a half hectares ready for garlic Australia. It, it makes my job worth worthwhile coming up to work every day. Well, good luck guys. Let's, fingers crossed, we'll have a lovely season. Hello, my name is Nick Diamantopoulos. I'm the CEO of Australian Garlic Producers. Usually garlic is a cooler climate crop. This is um, our most northern crop. Um, all our other crops sort of start coming in late September, October. So to be able to have garlic coming in in August and to grow garlic literally in the desert is quite unique. What does that allow producers to be able to do? Well, what it allows us, it allows us to go to market and extend our garlic season. So most other countries in the world, they, they actually harvest garlic for anywhere between three, four weeks, maybe six weeks maximum. But to be able to harvest fresh Australian garlic for a five, six month window is just pretty well unheard of. And does that mean that Australians will be able to buy Australian garlic for longer durations of the year? That's the idea. The idea is to replace imported garlic and to have fresh Australian garlic all year round. And with our diverse climatic conditions, um, we can certainly do that. And what are some of the challenges of growing in this climate and in this soil? Look, this soil is obviously very hungry. It lacks a lot of organic material. Um, but again, you know, it's all about rebuilding the soil over, over years and um, um, good crop rotations. Um, obviously, you can also get extreme weather. Um, you can get very, very cold conditions and you can get very, very hot conditions. Um, but having said that, garlic's a pretty hardy crop. And if you marry up the right variety for the right area, you're halfway there. During the trial, some centre farm workers, including Sabrina, had the opportunity to visit the Garlic Australia headquarters in Mildura. There, Sabrina saw her own garlic that she grew, boxed and ready for the supermarket shelf. When they harvested first, second garlic here, and we went to that place, that um, factory, and they told us that this garlic belonged to you, and that made me happy. Sabrina and Tisha and the other Ali Karung workers are eager to sell their produce around the country. Maybe around the world, maybe too. Yeah. How does yeah. that make you feel? Proud. Um, it's proud and I'm very proud. Yeah. Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly planting garlic near Ali Karung, north of Ellis Springs in the Northern Territory. That report from Victoria Ellis. And you can find more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Head to the RN website, abc.net.au slash RN and look for Country Breakfast under the program page. ABC Listen. Uh, so tell me, what's the question that people ask the most on the Dr. Carl podcast? Everything in the entire universe, from haematology to biology to geology. Was there really a big bang? What happens when I have dark urine in the toilet? And finally, why is the sky blue? But mainly just farts. Lots of farts. Dr. Carl and Dr. Lucy have all the answers on the Dr. Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. The dairy industry was without a doubt one of the hardest agricultural sectors hit by the catastrophic floods in the New South Wales Northern Rivers region one year ago. 
Hundreds of cows were washed away by flood water, bales of fodder too, crops and pastures were ruined, vats and vats of milk dumped across the region, machinery, infrastructure and homes destroyed. That level of destruction and devastation can take years to recover from. A year on, at Peter Graham's dairy, milk production is still half of what it should be, and it'll likely take another six months to reach full production. Kim Honan visited his farm at Codrington on the Richmond River to revisit the flood impact and discuss the road forward. Catastrophic, yep. In capital letters, Kim. Um, to see um, one and a half metres of water coming over the Richmond River at the lower end of the Richmond River... Um, like a tidal wave. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous. Um, to think that um, the tide was that strong, you couldn't walk from the house to the dairy, um, or virtually from the dairy to the house, I should say, because um, we went back to the dairy to get the tractor as we were moving out of the house um, to go and squat over in the dairy for a couple of days. Yeah, that was, uh, it was interesting times. Um, we ended up with uh, eight inches of water in the house, which is nothing compared to a lot. But once you're wet, you're wet at the end of the day. Um, yeah, the damage is done. And um, we, uh, we s we're still waiting for, um, for things to come together for our house in the sense that um, insurance companies are um, fixing things up for us. They're, um, they're still aligning their, um, their work team to, uh, to do work on our house. Um, the farm, yeah, I suppose that's been a long, slow... Uh, draining process to get that somewhere near back on track and I think I'm still on a very gravelly road I'm nowhere near the highway that's for sure and I think there's a lot of us down here on the floodplain that could say the same thing the highways in the distance and every one of us has a little bit further or it's a little bit closer so um, we're all at different places but um, yeah look it's knocked us around but it's knocked our cows around when you've got cows standing out in the paddock that have got water almost to their backs and there's a few of us in that boat here, a bit different to a few others lower downstream that had cattle washed away. We were fortunate that that wasn't the case but the stress that it's put on our herd, they don't want to milk, they don't want to come back to production and then going back in calf ready for next year is just taking so long to get the cows back to where they used to be. And then the pastures in the paddock, well that's that's another, another job um, where they just aren't responding. We haven't got a weed problem in, per se. Um, the ground's just compacted and then to turn dry like it did uh, in sort of late September, October. Um, it, it exacerbated uh, any summer, summer planting problems. So, yeah, it's, it's made it a yeah, rough road. It really has. Okay. And um, how much did your milk production drop by and have you reached those levels pre those floods yet? <laughs> wow. Uh, Kim, we, um, from where we were in February to April, we were at 34% of where we were. And we thought that was pretty serious. But the, bad, the worst of it is we're still at 50%. And um, it's taking that, just that little bit too long to get um, to get back on the main road heading to the highway. Yeah, a little bit too long, but um, yeah, it's happening. And how long do you think it'll be back up to 100% your milk production? If we have a good ryegrass season, I would expect it to be 100% by August, September. Yeah, I would hope August, September.
So a year and a half after the floods. Oh, that, yeah, that yeah, easy enough. Yeah, true. Yep. And then your income is halved as well. Yeah, yeah well, once again, you try not to think about it too much because um, it does it does eat away at you. People need to be paid, and when your income is halved, and protein meals are dearer than like a hundred dollars a ton dearer, interest rates have gone up. Yeah, we all we're all feeling it. So why then are we standing here? You're about to milk your cows. Why didn't you leave the industry? What kept you in it here on the farm? I weren't supposed to ask that. Um, no, this, this industry's what I love. Uh, I've always said milk in my veins. Um, five generations milking cows on the north coast. That's pretty special to me and I hope to keep that going. Um, trying to get back on track so I can encourage the kids to come home because all they've seen for the last two years is oh, Bill's adding up. Geez, Mum, Dad, do, why do we want to do this? And so the plan is to uh, get it functioning again and show that there can be a profit. And, um, yeah, so that's just keeping control on, uh, on costs, which is not easy um, when you've got no real green feed out in the paddock. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty tough going so um, you just got to do the best with what you've got and um, hope for tomorrow. Peter Graham, Vice Chair of East Oz Milk on his farm at Codrington alongside the Richmond River, he was speaking with Kim Honan. Here on Country Breakfast, we're often discussing the hotly contested waters of the Murray-Darling Basin. But I'm switching it up this week because I'm on the banks of Melbourne's Birrarungma, or Yarra River. It's often the butt of jokes, described as upside down due to its muddiness, and entering the lower stretch at least is seen as a major risk to personal health. But the reason I'm here now is because a lot of things are changing for Birrarungma, and one of the most significant changes is that it now has a legally enshrined voice. In this case, the river gained a formal statutory voice through the appointment of the Birrarung Council, and we were created under the Willapjin Birrarung Moron, or Keep the River Alive, Yarra River Protection Act in 2017. Dr Erin O'Donnell sits on that council and has been a driving force behind Birrarungma gaining these legal rights. Rivers are always speaking to us, they're always communicating, but it's the requirement to listen um, and to find a way of translating their voice into a sphere that, that humans can actually understand and, and hear. So one of the ways that a river's voice can be heard is through the work of the people that know it best. And that will always be Indigenous peoples. They have known the river longest. How significant is the river to the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people? Well, it's, it's intrinsically a part of our culture. Uncle Dave Wandon also sits on the Birrarung Council. Listening to what the land and the rivers say advises us how to adapt our culture to fit into it. We've never owned the river. We belong to the river. We are not, and we, and we are custodians of the river, but it is not ours to influence. It's only ours to, to watch what it does and listen to the lessons that it teaches us. Since the arrival of Europeans, many of those lessons have fallen on deaf ears. 
Wetlands and swamps have been filled in and built over, its course has been altered and the water quality has declined as a result. In modern times, it's like, oh, you know, that's a bloody, that's full of mosquitoes and that's not good for us, so let's fill it in or let's drain it or, uh, and do all these kinds of things. But that actually had an ecological function and ecology equals our culture. Our culture evolved because of the ecology and the ecology evolved because of what how our culture interacted with it. Dr Erin O'Donnell says it's about bringing all the agencies and groups responsible for the river together. We look at all of the responsibilities of all of those different agencies and say, well, are you actually achieving the goals of the 10-year Yarra Strategic Plan, which is burned up Birurung, burned up Umaku, and are you actually working towards that 50-year vision? So every year we've got to tell the minister how much progress is actually being made? Are we seeing more of a collaborative approach? Are we seeing people actually focusing on and giving effect to the river as a living entity? And then the minister has to table that report in parliament. So it's a very direct line from the council to the minister to the public. Um, and that's really important because that's the transparency by which the, the river's voice can actually be heard by everyone. Um, so that's, that's our kind of major piece of work that we do every year. We also have an advocacy role. So the Act requires us to speak for the river's interests. And so again, it's we've interpreted that as very much a facilitation of the relationship. So bringing everybody into that kind of intimate relationship with the river where we do sit, feel a sense of obligation and responsibility to care for it. In some parts of the world, like New Zealand, rivers have been granted the full rights of a person, but that's not what's happened here. So a legal person can go to court, they can sue and be sued, they can enter into contracts. The Bureau can't do that sort of stuff. It is a living entity though. There are advantages to this model. And so one of the things that has happened in other parts of the world, not everywhere, but in many places, is that you see a real backlash against the idea of the legal person. So people become complacent, they start to think, well, the river's got all these powers, it can look after itself. They also become afraid. They look at this legally powerful entity and they are afraid of it suing them. So in this case, by not recognising the river as a legal person, what we've actually got is a piece of legislation that says the relationship is the most important thing. You are in a relationship with this living entity and how does that actually transform the way that you think about the river, the way that you treat the river, without necessarily having to rely on a big heavy legal stick. So the Yarra has a voice. What now? I'm a Melbourne transplant, originally from Perth, where it's still possible to catch fish and crabs in the river, and it's used nearly every day for boating and swimming. Today, on the banks of the Yarra, it's undoubtedly popular. There are thousands of people walking along its banks and bridges, and packed into the bars that line the city stretch of the river. But if I'm honest, I'm afraid of this water flowing past me. I've heard scary things about it, and what might happen if I fell in. To help shift my city-centric mindset about the river, Uncle Dave Wandon says a better perspective of the whole watercourse and its potential is needed. So if you really want to understand the Yarra River, you need to go and look at it where it is still in relatively intact condition prior to colonisation to understand what it should look like. So that's, of course, in the upper reaches where it begins at Mount Borbal, um, to understand the objectives that we're trying to achieve in, you know, the city of Melbourne or at Docklands. So that, that's the aim that we should be looking for. 
While the sad news is that a voice for the river and this major force for positive change might not have Melburnians diving into the Yarra on their lunch break, Dave Wandon says the Birrurung Council's unique ability to fold in First Nations knowledge with the existing layers of river management will drive improvements right along the river. Yeah, so how do we undo what's been done in the last 200 years? Um, and, and the reality is we can't undo it. There is too many people living and relying on, on the Yarra River. So we need to actually combine our ancient ecological knowledge, cultural knowledge, but remembering that it was a science with the modern science. So instead of inventing new ways to improve the river, we need to also look at how can we implement the old ways of how the river was kept stable and healthy. So what is it about this river and these communities that has given it this voice? Why did it happen here and not somewhere else? Victoria has been, as a state government, has been very, very forward thinking of recognising the contribution that Aboriginal people have made to Victoria. I don't think it's recognised as much in other states. And therefore they've allowed us a voice at the table that when they're making decisions about land and rivers and all that kind of thing, and this was the best place to, uh, we were the best situated to not so much copy what other countries have done, but to use them as an examples and see if we could do it. We as collaboratively, you know, the Indigenous, us as Indigenous people, and all the various migrations that have happened here in Victoria. The uniting factor when you look around the world at rivers that have received this kind of legal recognition is that they are absolutely beloved by their communities. They are almost always heavily impacted as well. So these are rivers that are doing hard yards for their local communities, but people love them. And it's that love that eventually transcends the impact we know we're having and actually gives us a way to move forward. So it takes us out of the trade-off and the, the guilt of the impact that we've had in the past or that we're still having right now and says we can rebuild this relationship and it doesn't really matter if things are really, really rough or hard or the river's in a really tough place. Like you mentioned, you don't really want to go swimming in it. Nope. It's not a safe river to actually have an intimate relationship with, um, particularly in its lower reaches. But we love it anyway and we care for it anyway. And that's, that's something that connects the, this river to all the rivers around the world. Dr Erin O'Donnell from the Birrurung Council, the voice of the Yarra River, speaking to me during the Council's lunch break earlier this week. And that really sums up the Yarra River. Melburnians, including myself, love it, even with its many flaws. But the glistening Swan River in Perth will always have a very special place in my heart. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Angie Grant for bringing Country Breakfast together this week. And there's plenty more of the good stuff, the best stuff even, coming up this morning right here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.